Reading Room, a literary podcast devoted to the works of Appendix A. Here we open the library doors of the Sanctum Socorro to you. everybody welcome back we are here in the sanctum Sacorum reading room once more and for our listeners and viewers whether you are new to the literary world of appendix n a diehard fan of the genre or even just tuning in to see how certain titles tie into a particular set of role-playing games we invite you to join us as we dive into the history and influence of appendix n We'd like to open our libraries to you and inspire readers to explore these new worlds. And tonight, as many of you know, we are continuing our exploration of the women of Appendix N. We're going to be talking about Gertrude Barrows Bennett writing as Frances Stevens and her 1918 novel, The Citadel of Fear. I am Jen Brinkman, and my illustrious co-host would be Bob. Hey, everybody. And Bob, you're our great sin-out guy. After a journey through the harsh Mexican desert nearly claims their lives, two Irish-American prospectors discover a dense jungle where a lost race of Aztecs is rumored to remain. In Tlapian, lost city of an ancient race, lay the black stone of evil incarnate. Left with two options, to return home through the treacherous sands or continue into the unknown, only one man escapes. And his actions haunt him as the consequences of his choices follow him across the country, forcing him to enter and confront the Citadel of Fear. This was originally serialized in Argosy in 1918, but this story is still in print over 100 years later. Yes, it is. As mentioned last month, the author's story itself is what really pulled me into this. And she's as interesting as the stories she wrote, which, as it turns out, are pretty good. Yes, uh, I would say I would say that calling Citadel of Fear very good or really good is a huge, huge understatement. Discredit, perhaps? Oh, my God. It's... It, <laughs> The story is amazing, right? I, yes, yes. But let's let's talk about let's talk about uh, Gertrude Barrows Bennett for a minute. I mean, I, there are parts of her life that are are a little horrific and and mysterious, just like parts of her books. She was born September eighteenth, eighteen eighty four. Passed away February second, nineteen forty eight, which was kind of young, but even for the time, that was that was sort of young, but. In the bane of being young, she wrote her first short story at the age of 17, The Curious Experience of Thomas Dunbar, and she sold that story and went on to be published in 1904 Argosy Magazine under the name G.M. Barrows. Right. And, and that was published just before some poetry, which was also using her own name. And that's pretty much where the use of her last name stopped being associated with these publications right and the the poetry i think was published just like a month or two later in a, in a different magazine 
But what's really kind of cool about that first publication in GM Barrows. So yes, using her initials hides the fact that, that she's a woman from, from the, the readers of the time, but it's also the earliest known instance of an American female author publishing science fiction under her own name. And that's, that's, that's it, it's a weird factoid it, to come across, stunning. right? Yeah, it, it is. It's one of those things where you take it for granted that, yeah, okay, well, women a lot of times use pseudonyms, but, but sometimes they publish them with their own names. and Right. And, and just for our, our viewers, Sky, too, uh, we'll take a little bit longer to talk about the author right now because uh, they're still finishing the book. <laughs> uh, I found it really interesting to learn that she was only educated through eighth grade. She had to leave oh, wow. school to help support her family. You now, there was a lot of death in her family, and she was actually working in the office of a, of a department store when she wrote that first novel when she was 17. You know, I, for, for a second, I was kind of stunned that, that someone who had only gotten that far in education could write so well. But then I go back to letters written home during the Civil War. And I realized right. that really education today does not reflect education then. And and there are reports of her, her parents being uh, interested in literature. And so there were probably plenty of things from the late 1800s available to her at home to read. She had to be a reader just based on some of the information that's in this book. Uh, right. Uh, the briefest synopsis I could find of on that first novel was that it was about a man who survives a car accident, wakes up in a scientist's lab, and gains super strength uh, through a mishap with a new element. So it could be put forth that this is one of the origins for superheroes, too. Yeah, you know, that's... Uh, <laughs> I had an accident with something radioactive is like half of the uh, half the origins of, of uh, early superheroes. Uh, 1900, uh, there we have it. <laughs> Now, it wasn't until 1952 that anybody learned that Francis Stevens, the author of The Citadel of Fear, was Gertrude Barrows Bennett. It took that right. long. It wasn't, in, it wasn't until after her death that she ever got credit for this story you know, linked to her personally. Which well, is wasn't this the, the third, maybe the second or third piece that was actually published through... Uh, this was originally published through Argosy. This was through Argosy. Later in 1917, the next time she published fiction was the story The Nightmare, put through All Story Weekly was the name right. of the periodical. And she requested the pen name of Jean Vale, V-E-I-L. It was rejected and the editor put it forth under a different name. Yeah. <laughs> These are the things in life that are and, infuriating, and, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So she she lived and died before most of, or probably all, of the, the major awards that we think of when we're looking at science fiction and fantasy. But the critics of the time, um, Sam Moskowitz was like the historian of, of science fiction until until he passed away. 
And he said that she was the greatest woman writer of science fiction in the period between Mary Shelley and C.L. Moore. And for the time, right, for the time that was considered high praise, I would say that she was probably one of the greatest writers of science fiction in the period between that. I would, I would take out the, you know, the, the modifier there, because this is, her stuff is frankly astonishingly good. Um, this particular story in my brain reading, you know, oh, hey, there's this lost tribe immediately linked to uh, an H.P. Lovecraft story of, of a very similar vein. And this is far superior to anything that Lovecraft ever wrote. And I say this as a person that has read everything that Lovecraft has ever written repeatedly. Um, this is just, uh, yeah. a, this is just astoundingly good. Um, on that on that note, um, scholar Gary Hoppenstead was the one who originally said H.P. Lovecraft was the progenitor of dark fantasy, and he has since recanted that, putting Barrows Bennett in that place. Which makes sense. She came first, right? Um, By I mean, about a decade. Yeah. And, about a decade before Call of Cthulhu was published. And, and really, I mean, the term dark fantasy was coined later and the people the two people coined the term and they couldn't really agree on what it was originally but now that it has been kind of codified and is solid you look back and yes it is certainly not lovecraft this is this is an author who influenced lovecraft and influenced merit and you know the the right. combination of of horror and dread along with with fantasy tones is what dark fantasy is lovecraft really didn't involve a whole lot of faint well i mean it obviously wasn't realism but his stuff was really more horror than than fantasy to begin with there's there's shades there that's fair that's fair whereas merit is definitely you know skirting that horror edge um i did find a quote from the editors of weird tales in 1974, listing her in the era of great scientific romancers, right up there with Burroughs, uh, George Allen England, with whom I'm not familiar, A. Merritt, and of course, listing her as Frances Stevens, which is another just kind of raising uh, the fist against everything. It, <laughs> it, it, it's a shame. She, she did not get the, the recognition that she deserved while she was alive, but Wow. The, the materials that she wrote are just they they stand they stand on their own they they really do right and that would be between five novels and seven uh short stories or or novellas if you will right yeah i just i'm kind of stuck on her own personal tragic story especially as we start to think about what happens in the citadel of fear um, her husband died just a year after they got married, leaving her with a newborn. And that's yeah. one of the reasons she went back to writing full time and, and was so prevalent in the pulps at that point because she had to support her kid. Um, but he died while on an underwater treasure hunting expedition near Florida um, reports can't agree whether it was, you know, a shipwreck collision or if they were overtaken by a tropical storm, but death by misadventure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Just a little. My God. Yeah. 
<laughs> kind so, of puts so things her, together with the story, right? Her husband died on a treasure hunting expedition. It, it, it took me. It, I'm not firing on all cylinders, but that finally clicked. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I certainly see the influences of of uh, life and art. Yeah. And then there was also the point of you know around what was it less than 20 years after that she had her friends take care of her daughter and finish raising her and she just up and left and went to california yeah it became a mystery herself at that point yeah she kind of was not necessarily the warmest of mothers ditch her kid and leave and refuse all contact after yeah, there was there was speculation of did she die in 1939 when that letter was returned as undeliverable to her daughter or from her daughter or did she die in 48 and burial records put it in 48. So so does social that's, security, yeah. That's like a 9 year difference. I just that's a long period of estrangement. And while she and, and she just sort of dropped off the face of the earth and possibly remarried. But yeah, 1923 was the last time anyone saw anything from her. And that was in Weird Tales. So speaking of tales, right? Well, I'm speaking of tales. Yeah, she herself was inspired by Poe. She inspired all these others. Before we get into into the specific little details, there are two words I want to bring up from the story that are mentioned in succession and made me wonder who else she may have inspired. By mentioning uh, what? I don't think that it was a, an influence, but but go ahead, go ahead, because because it, it did make me it did make me do a double take when I saw it at first as well. Given given Margaret Saint Clair's tendencies to also lean on some Celtic mythology, talking about the shadow people in this context really got my little wheels running. I, I okay, did my little hamsters. Was, I, I thought that was a that was a neat a neat neat link. And, uh, and I would, I would ask that, uh, you know, out in the audience there, those of you that are, that are here with us tonight, I wonder how you feel this story read to me, this felt like this felt more like a, a contemporarily written story. It didn't seem when you read a lot of stories from like the fifties and early sixties or earlier, the language always yeah, you know, there, there's a, a definite difference in in the language and the structure, and it can be somewhat jarring at times. And this felt like like anything I would have read, well, like in the early '70s, right when I was when I was growing up. It it felt like it it did not feel like it was written a hundred years ago. Exactly, exactly. Uh, well, Tony Hoggard says people used to write. You know, emphasis yes. his. Yeah, yes, uh, yes, yes, they did. People also used to read. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, it, and exactly. Uh, Sky, she asked, what about her influences? You know, I, I'm picking up possibly some Hodgson vibes, but definitely Edgar Allan Poe was a stated influence of hers. And the, one of her short stories mirrors the cask of Amontillado, apparently. Well, I can I can certainly I can certainly see uh, picking up an, an Arthur Machen vibe from this, but she didn't really state a whole lot of influences because, well, let's face it, nobody was really talking to her and publishing it. It was all about Francis Stevens, and uh, and so not a whole lot was stated by the alias Mister Stevens. Now, it, it didn't, you know, I agree with Sky too, and that it didn't feel contemporary for me, but that was simply because of the setting. 
Well, I'd like to point out that 1970s, that, you know, that's that's 50 years ago. That's not, I suppose, not really. It was contemporary for me, okay? I'm old. <laughs> Sky 2 didn't need to point out that I'm old. Uh, Nin- yeah, 1918 no, it, was not contemporary for you, dear. <laughs> no, but it, but it felt, it really did. It felt like the stuff that I was reading in the 70s. It felt like it could have been written by by Niven or or Asimov that 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 level of language but with that that fluidity of prose yes just to share uh we ended up with the version from Mint Publishing which is kind of ironic which was published in just last year i think but it it's a direct reprinting oh yeah cuz it is it's in the public domain as an editor myself, I would just like to have a moment of appreciation for this glorious, glorious thing, the table of contents. <laughs> I have to geek out for a minute here. Geek out. Uh, the organization of how the, the pieces of this story were put together are just freaking brilliant. First off, the, the first nine chapters, that's the part that hooks you into the book. That's the action. That there are so many points where you want to tell them to wait, stop, stop moving, take a look around, show me what's around. And you just, you're left with, but wait, I was over here. The action just won't stop. And that's really the the crux of what gets you in. And just about chapter 10, the story shifts radically from the surreal Aztec city to an ordinary, at least back then, American suburb of the time, right? But the madness is still there. Well, and then, let's, end let's of not Act talk about one. shift. Yeah, I want to say let's not talk about shifting from Act One until we talk about Act One. Right? Well, I mean, no, that Chapter Ten is the last chapter of Act One. Yeah, I, I understand that. Let's so talk you about have, Act One. It's kind of an epilogue into itself. Because you you think, okay, they're back home, everything is fine, and oh, oh no, it, everything is certainly not fine. Oh, and that's the end of this act. But what's in, but what's <laughs> interesting, hang on, because what's very interesting no, I is love that's, it. Not, that's not where the story would have broken when it was being published in Argosy, though. And it was published, it, it was published over, over seven weeks. It was essentially four chapters per week. So... Well, it was you would done have had in nine, seven 10, installments. Right. You would have had 9, 10, 11, and okay. 12 would have been one portion, right? So you would have had that, you would have had that shift mid-issue. It reads okay. so it reads very differently um, yeah, in, in the book okay. format. In the book format, it's broken down like a film in three acts. Right. And but, it's 10, 10, and then the the remainder. And it, it's brilliantly broken down in this format. I don't know how I would have liked it in the serialized form, breaking it down into four chapters. Wow. Okay, now I got to see what chapter five was because that well, was. Let's let's <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about the story here. Let's let, 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 let's talk about this. I mean, it, the in, the introduction of of our of our of our two you know, main characters at the beginning, you know, uh, Colin O'Hara and Archer, Archer Kennedy. I don't know. I, I never liked Archer Kennedy. Archer Kennedy just always seemed kind of like a worm and a weasel. And well, and so I, he was totally useless. Like the first two chapters. Well, he was I, unconscious. I, it wasn't just that though. He wasn't nice. There was a, there was a, a shade of sinister to his actions at the beginning. And so I immediately gravitated to Colin O'Hara 
Uh, yes. So, but you've got these these two Irishmen out in the desert, and I want to say, as an Irishman, you would not get me wandering around the desert. You put me on a beach. I'm like a fork in the microwave. So the idea of two Irishmen wandering in the Mexican desert is, was a little hard to swallow well, at first. They- no, she she did explain that that's pretty much what happened to Boots. Yes, yes, she did, and that's and that's as, that's what as he totally literally won me over to the Irishman in the desert, and and he bore the weight of Kennedy for the majority of this chapter. Oh, these chapters. Well, right. So he, he he carries them through the desert, and then like like so many other literary pieces before, right? You know, Shangri La and others. All of a sudden, there's this mysterious place that has no business being there, and they they essentially come across this this massive hacienda with orchards, and that's not what one finds in the desert. And it was deserted, or it was. Uh, it was mostly quiet, deserted. Yeah, it was very for, quiet. Except for the owner and his daughter, who gravitated towards Boots because Boots was the nice man. Yes, yes, children he was. know these things. <laughs> and and so as we as we then get get introduced to another person who is wholly out of place in the middle of of the Mexican desert, right? Sven Bjornsson, right? Let's let. So we've got two. Two Irishmen and a Norseman walk into the Mexican desert. I don't know what the punchline is yet. And the punchline is it gets really spooky. Um, but it there's yeah. just this incongruity to these characters in that location. So that when we get a little further, what I found was as, as we discover, you know, this, this lost or hidden city with its guardians, because the characters already felt so out of place, for me, it made this fantastic setting seem natural and fitting, mm-hmm. right? And and so that's why I wanted to know more about it. But they weren't allowed to explore more. Well, not <sighs> not a whole lot, right? But yeah. we, but from what we got, we we were told how the the various factions you know that served the various gods. Who they spoke of in the present tense, right? You don't, no, no, he he will do bad things to you. They, they spoke of them not only in the present tense, but like they were part of the family that was present. Like they were a grandfather, like they were a real person. And, and that also oh, kind yes. of sets a tone, you know, with the, with a weird, you know, 10 foot tall white guardians and the, and the, the giant hounds. And, and the speakers of the gods and on behalf of Quetzalcoatl, I claim this man. And, the retort was Quetzalcoatl was once a mere man himself. And that, wow, that's, that just kind of sent my brain spinning for a while too. So they're trying to say that all of the gods started as white men and, and that because it was not just a man, but a white man. Right. But they weren't, but they weren't white men. They were white men. And like the difference. guardians. Okay. Like they're made of marble. Okay. That's, that's another take on that. I, I'll buy it. Um, well, and, and speak, speaking of coloration, we, I, again in the, in the comments, Tony, Tony Hart and Tony Hogard always always there with the mm-hmm. the observations. You know, Archer Kennedy is small and dark. He's essentially he's black Irish, right? Which is different yeah. from black and Irish. They're black Irish, right. and uh, and boots though boots. He is the stereotypical strapping red-headed lad oh, like God. Carrie that carries the sheep home. He's the Fawford. He is. He is. Man. 
he, yeah. he is the, the yeah. Fofford pre-Fofford. And yes. and I love it. You would he's like, Oh, well, we need to escape. They've been they've been thrown into a cell, they need to escape. And he's like, Okay, well, I'll just pound the crap out of the guy. And that is exactly what he does. You know, tired, weak. He's like, okay, well, yeah. this, is, this is, and that is sort of the running theme through the entire book is, well, there's a gun right there, but you know, I'll just pound the crap out of the guy. Uh, and Can I just say how well this would play for DCC? Just throwing that out there. <laughs> it's in public domain. I'll, I'll stress that again. It's in the public domain. But yeah, I mean, he almost felt like a modern predecessor to the sword and sorcery heroes, like, like, um, well, like Conan or, uh, or others written by by Howard, maybe especially in his boxing tales. You just have this this big guy who, no matter what is coming at him, is like, okay, well, you know, something weird is happening. I'll punch it until it stops moving. Yeah, <laughs> and and it works. Uh, not he always well, weapons. but it works. Even even later in life, he was eschewing the weapons. He, if it wasn't something he could handle with his own fists, it wasn't worth handling. Right. I well, gotta and, respect and, that. And he's described as being so big that something like a pistol looked small and funny in his hands, anyway. Right. So you yeah, get he was like six foot eight or something. Yeah, he yeah. is. He is a mountain of a man. And they hinted some supernatural something or other in his Celtic heritage too. Yeah, it was like great grandpa married affair. Something like that, yeah, yeah. Uh, so speaking of Sven Bjornson, uh, didn't he marry a fairy too? Well, what, he, what would you call her? Well, they well, the residents were people, though, right? I mean, he didn't marry one of the guardians, no, but even the women glowed. Well, no, they 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 had they had glowing moths that that description. The moth woman. Yeah, yeah. That, that description, there was part of it that really weirded me out because it was like, yes, yeah, so these glowing moths, I wonder if they're attached to her. Like women of the Caribbean attach fireflies to their hair. And that just sort of stopped me dead for a minute. It's like, you know, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of looking if women in the Caribbean ever actually tied fireflies to their hair because it's such a great image anyway, right? I don't... It is. Although, I mean, this was the string would just bring them right down, right? I mean, what are you going to (laughs) use? This is this is written after her husband died, looking for you know buried treasure. Yes, that was that was the connection. Took me a little while to make earlier. (laughs) Maybe maybe there's a bit of yeah, Uh, but around the Caribbean, you know, around the Floridian area there. I'm curious because Boots fell in the water in Tlopian. Yeah. Is there any connection between the hell that he felt and her husband's fate? Learning her husband's fate really just put these pieces together for me. Well, and when he first fell into the water and he was in lots of pain, I immediately thought, well, it's it's probably salt water, right? I mean, this guy's beaten, he's scratched, he's bloody. Anybody that's ever gone swimming in the like the Gulf of Mexico with open wounds, ow! But then someone else gets thrown in, right? And they're they're terrified of being thrown in, and it's the water itself is just almost alive with current that that underlying edge of power that is never explained. 
but is is so is so terrifyingly present. So it it very well could be it it could be a, a reflection of her husband went out onto the water and never came back. And so w- the water is personified as dangerous in her mind. Um, and and then you had the storms out there as well that just made everything. He didn't know which way to turn. Well, and then getting, getting back to her, her education for a minute, right? I want to say that for someone in the pre-internet age who was born in Minneapolis, she, her, her understanding of Mexican mythology is, is better than a lot of the people that I met while we were in Mexico. Tezcatlipoca is, is a particular favorite dark deity of man. I've, I've written Lovecraftian adventures using him as, as one of the faces of Nyarlathotep. And so the moment I saw that, I just, I lit up and. Uh, right, right. Uh, she was working as a professor's secretary um, at the University of Pennsylvania after her husband died. It was one of the jobs she took. Oh, that is true. Before she had to completely go back to working from home because she had to care for her disabled mother afterwards. Yeah. Baby and mom all at the same time. But but such a yeah, great understanding. That's rough these days. And yeah. and the way that well, I'll talk I'll talk about about the uh, the gods more later. Oh, I mean, but but this are we this still entire, in Act One? <laughs> well, we kind of are at the moment, right? This first act ends with our true hero, right, Colin O'Hara. He is escaping, the hero. escaping into the desert, and uh, and we don't really get we don't really get the description of his journey so much as he leaves, and then wow, he was found near dead. Right, and and at least in this edition, uh, chapter ten opens with him uh, having gone back, and he they completely gloss over it there, but he's gone back and he had collected the uh, Quetzalcoatl figurine that had been hanging in the house in the ranch house, and that house had been completely empty possibly partially demolished by the time that he'd gone back. So we go from him being let out blindfolded to a spot so that he can never find this magical city again. And his friend being kept there as punishment. Well, friend, partner. Uh, The very next scene we have is 15 years later, he's presenting this figurine to his sister. Right. So, so, so there's that, a lot of travel that we don't get into. Yeah, so so that so that uh, transition was was startling, right? It was a little jarring. I and I had no all of a I, sudden we're in suburbia. Well, and I I had no idea what what I was getting into when I started reading the book. So I'm like, okay, well we've got this story. All right, we're in the we're in the Mexican desert. We're we're dealing with these hidden you know hidden gods and their guardians. Great. Okay, I'm in for this ride wait 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 why, why but why are we taking the exit what no why why i want i want and and exactly. so the story veers veered off in a direction i wholly didn't see coming and i overall i greatly enjoyed that the story took turns that i didn't expect that but they weren't jarring i mean no, yes I, a, a time jump of 15 years is a little unusual when i'm reading something yeah. but it didn't feel like 15 years right and act 1 ends with something obviously supernaturally driven visiting the home of his sister 
the first visitation. And boy, seeing that chapter heading, the first visitation. You don't, uh, yeah. you don't need foreshadowing when you're just directly telling people, yeah, there's a lot more to come. It just gets worse from here. Uh, no, I, I would like to go on record as saying that the women in this story are not helpless creatures. And that is so refreshing. Uh, you know, they're concerned for the men around them and, uh, you know, again, possibly mirroring her real life. But aside from the occasional failed sanity check, which happens for the men just as easily, I I really appreciated the portrayal of Collins's sister, Cleona. Right, which is which is simply Colin scrambled with an A at the end. And that, yeah. and that, I think, kind of, kind of tells you quite a bit about the character. She is not as, you know, she's not as physically burly, but she is certainly as strong in her own way. She has the same level of courage. They, you know, these are siblings. They are very much alike in so many important ways. And and yeah, during that first visitation, when something is smashing its way through the house, it's not leap through the window and escape it's all right let me get my gun and put a couple shots through the door that's empty a clip maybe yeah Yeah, you know well empty empty the revolver right and just bam 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 this is this is not a woman that that is is shirking away automatic it was very bizarre well that's right it wasn't yeah well that's right because this is because the story is is uh kind of contemporary to when it was written It, it it takes place it takes place I believe the beginning is during World War One, and then we we jump to after. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so yes, that, technologically that would, speaking, that would yeah. Fit. yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, folks, that was all in Act One. Um, yeah, as you could tell, Bob and I really, really, really liked Act One. Act Two was a little tougher to get through. See, now I, I disagree. I. So when I read this, I read the first three chapters and then I sat down and I read the rest of it. Um, And yes, the, the second act, there's, there's a lot of dread, right? It it is, it builds a lot of suspense, a lot of dread. It is kind of the darkness of dark fantasy. Um, There's, there's a whole lot of atmosphere. You know, something's coming. And it's not just coming one more time because then you see the second visitation and you go back to the table of contents. You're like, wait, there's a third and there's a fourth, you know, it just keeps things keep happening. Things keep coming. And, but in slow motion, man, you you guys got to understand when, when I get nervous and I'm reading, I I eat and it's not good. I, I ate a lot. I was so nervous. I'm like, just, Come on, let's get to the good part. But see, for me, I that kind of was, was the all, good part. It was good, but it, it was nerve wracking with no with no closure. Well, it it was it was certainly building, right? And if you if you actually look at if you if you stop and look at the the way the book is structured, you can kind of see the ebb and flow of this week in Argosy and. This week in Argosy, it certainly if it has it has a flow based on this based on you know its serialization, but it, she she doesn't just she doesn't just pad pages. 
right? There's there's all sorts of little things. You mentioned the shadow people, but there's also the great moment where you know, uh, Colin's sister Cleona is reading um, the Island of Doctor Moreau, and Colin was reading it too while he was while he went back to the house. Yeah, and so you've you've got these people that are reading this story, and then it kind of kind of comes into play. It is not just a throwaway detail when all of the sudden he's attacked by this man-like thing that you know, reaches down from the trees to try and strangle him, uh, which in, it was when it was uh, later republished, there is a beautiful illustration of that scene with Khan reaching down out of the tree and holding it by the neck and pulling him up. There's, there there some, it is. Yes. And, and so it, it, it fits. She didn't, there, while while there's certainly no wasted prose, there's there's no padding, there's no real fluff. Everything is sort of setting up what is to come. All of the interactions with the police, which are Ugh. frustratingly, I just, I really could have just given two bits about them. I kick them out of the story. We don't need them. They're useless. We've established this. Let's move on. Why are they back? Um, Okay, Act Three. One of them kind of, re- well, I guess both of them redeem themselves for, yeah. But for wow, own reasons, two. right? Wow. I mean, that's that's kind of the thing. So, so Act Two really is, it it's sort of establishing our our new location. It's establish, which really establishing and, our new location is kind of a misnomer because we're never really told where they're at. Right, they're, and, they're just uh, town. Like North Carolina ish. It, it they're, almost they're seems, somewhere, they're somewhere in the United States where there's yeah. water and there's trees, <laughs> and, and that's and, really and we, all we've got. We do meet Mister Reed, Mister Chester T. Reed, who is new to town, and he bought this house because nobody really wanted it since the old or the old owner had hanged himself there or something. So it went really cheap, and the new guy in town could get it. Yeah, so now now we have mysterious newcomer in town lives in the cursed house, With and so the Van Dyke beard. Yes, <laughs> and which I greatly appreciate. And glasses, the beard I, and I glasses. Great, I greatly appreciated the use of Van Dyke because that that's fallen out of out of favor. But what so many people refer to as a goatee is a Van Dyke. A goatee has no mustache, right? So I could, I, so it was nice to see. That that little detail, it just pleased me. Okay, I'll just. Well, and the minute it was mentioned that it was a beard and a and a set of glasses, and just the the offhand familiarity this guy showed, I was like, I know who that is. I so did not pick up on that, and I really should have. I love all it. those all those years of Star Trek Mirror Universe references. You know, how do you make right. someone evil? Right, you just give him a mustache and yeah. I I told um, you it's a precursor to superheroes. <laughs> yes, he he did. Yes, the Clark Kent classes. So so Chester Chester Reed and his menagerie of unseen animals and feeder sheep and his albino servant Marcus. Yes, yeah, who was really God. He was unsettling. Creepy. Yes, he was. He was so he was so unsettling. I I would say that the way he was the way he was written, he was written moist. Right. I that and then just. That's, yeah. that's just you just got that feeling this guy is covered with a sheen um <laughs> God. You know, Thanks, pre, a pre-insmith look 
you know, Innsmouth look. He was just awful. Yeah. Uh, so chapter 20, which is the end of act two. ends. I, I, I will admit like chapter 10 does dun 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 on a huge cliffhanger. And I had to tap out prior to chapter 20 in my first sitting. So I chewed it up all at once. And then, okay, I've got to put it down. Must've been the beginning of chapter 20 when I picked it up again. And that ending made me go, you did not. And okay. Now we're speed reading through the end. Cause yeah, we've got to do this. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. It just, yikes. Oh, <laughs> it just, yeah. As sky, sky two's with me, right? The, the revelation of the shimmons of feeble livestock was genuinely creepy. And it was, it's not, he's not well, buying. And, and I'm thinking, is it food or is it? Oh, it was experiment definitely fuel. You know, the moment, the moment I said like, you know, this is, this is not livestock. This is, this is, these are feeder sheep, much like people have feeder mice for snakes. And I was just kind of wondering what he was feeding. Um, uh, besides Genghis Khan. Yeah. The right. Giant. The, white the giant white ape, ape thing. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that wasn't trying to mimic the guardians of the city at all. I'm sure. It, yeah, it, yeah. It's Wow. Well, and and it, it yeah. kind of you hit that right. <laughs> it was it was kind mm-hmm. of a mocking parody of the guardians, yeah. because as, and, as we're we're kind of we kind of learn later as we move into Act Three that really Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan was not born so much as fashioned, and well, yeah, okay. Now I I also need to point out that during all of the encounters, sorry, that was my book clamping down there. During all of the encounters with um, Mr. Reed, his hand was in his jacket pocket. And, you know, my brain goes to, oh, great. So he's also the, the shifter and something didn't quite shift right. And because the idea of shapeshifters or werewolves or something had been thrown out there in, yes, it had. in here. And so that's what I'm thinking. And lovable old boots. Sorry, Colin at this time, he dropped the nickname. Uh, thought, surely he has a gun in his pocket. And as it turned out, we were both wrong, but I was at least half right. Uh, <laughs> it, it was no gun. It was a white furred, what looked like a glove. It looked like the hand of that ape-like creature yeah. that attacked him. And man, are we really going down this road? Survey says no, no, we are not. And, and I, I was legitimately thrown f- for the second major loop because after the after the home was demolished, the home of the sister, or pretty right. well trashed, and she had that breakdown, and nobody but Colin believed her when she told what she had seen to be fair colin had a frame of reference that everybody else was lacking right that is that is perfectly fair uh but he made big plans to go out on another expedition to find gold and find the treasure and was reportedly going down to buenos aires 
and instead hitched a train an hour north and went back to the old house. I did not see that coming. (laughs) To me, I think he was doing that specifically as as sort of a, I'm going to mislead these people that I'm leaving and I'm going to circle back and I'm going to, I'm going to get them. Right. And and that's, that's that's sort of fits the, the heroism when he's, when he's goes back to, to Reed's home and he, you know, he is at this point met Reed's, daughter who is who's never really named either and is you know presumably right. there's something wrong with her and in his mind she is immediately the dusk lady and and so he ends up rescuing her as well um matter of fact she's never uh, given a name no she's not but there is but with the illustrations again i think elena i think it's uh image number two there is an image of the rescue that's that shows her in the the diaphanous green gown and and Khan uh. reaching through the window as he is catching her. She is leaping out of a window, dropping down, and he doesn't move. He just mm-hmm. just catches her. He just solidly goes. caught her. Yeah, in this gown that's like shredded to bits and and so painstaking and she she won't change change out of it and we don't find out why until late in the third act Uh, until really late yeah when when she finally says more than like two words at a time uh now to her credit sister cleona takes this lady in and is so very kind to her and I have to wonder if she sees a little bit of herself in that because she was also broken and the dusk lady was presumed to be insane or at least not all there. And she she was was introduced that way and, and certainly felt that way. Yeah. She, she would only tell Colin her story and Colin had to leave before he heard it. So she is actually the first person to go to Colin's rescue during our finale. Yes. Now and as, Cleona leads the, the second wave of rescue. And and as we which is so, pretty badass. So now as we move into the third act and we discover the identity of 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 Chester Reed, which I had not, right? I was like, uh wait, wait, Khan. They're calling him Genghis Khan, but no Connedy. Maybe Oh my God, the last time we saw Kennedy, something bad was happening. Maybe. No, no, no. I, I really, I really got, I, I really, uh, I fell for it. Uh, yeah. So. No, that that's actually kind of awesome. What I didn't get was the fact that there was a, a man with white hair that kept trying to interrupt Colin as he was on his rampage rampage <laughs> and i didn't realize who that was until he made himself known to the sister and that and i was like know, oh man i feel dumb <laughs> you know it, it's funny again you know I, I mentioned that that the book is definitely structured you know it's, it's three acts it's, it's structured like a movie and so you've got this guy hey wait 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 hey 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 you're trying you know, just keep oh, popping yeah. up keep trying to catch him don't have time don't have time go away. don't have time and and to me yeah. that was i could so see that you know that that's sort of the yeah. comic relief that, that the, turns the out pacing, to be not so comic the pacing for the third act i will say picks right the heck up oh, i yeah. mean 
until you stall with the villain's monologue. But even that is pretty fast paced. Any good villain is allowed a villain justification speech. Well, and, and Colin is, is obviously just irritated and bored with it. So he keeps trying to interrupt and, and say, move it along. Come on, get to the point. Get get to where you kill me. Come on. And, and Kennedy says, no. Yeah, he's he, the, the the entire time, he, he, you know, he's he's beaten, he's tied up. And now I'm going to turn you into one of my creatures. Yeah, yeah. Can we get to the part where you turn me into a creature? Because you're really kind of boring me with everything you're telling me. And I really don't care. I just don't like you. Um, yeah, you did what to this city? You wrecked the entire Mexican city or the city in Mexico. Yeah, he just you, he, what? No, yeah, he, he took the whole thing out, and now it's and now I will rule the world through my monsters. Now let's just think about that for a moment, right? I'm going to make an army of monsters that breed like mad, and I'm going to throw them out into the world because they will listen to me. Now this is not one of the best thought through villain plans that I've ever come across, right? I mean that's 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 sort of like okay, well I've got a thousand atomic bombs and I'm going to just keep setting them <clears> off <throat> until you obey me, but but you live here too, and that um, and and so when you wipe everything out, you can't control every and and he really didn't care, and as we find out, it's because Reed himself is not. Kennedy himself, he is Tuscatlapoca in the form of Nakayatol, right? Who is the creator of hatred. He is right. possessed by a god bent on the ruination yes. of the world. And in his, uh, I don't want to say drug induced, but it, it, it's some substance that is applied to his skin that causes him to kind of black out and hallucinate colin that is well but he sees the gods right but he's not he's not hallucinating that's the thing Mm. so it's 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 never really named it's the thin like purple fluid that is spread over the skin so that it it begins the process and he's got a little bit on him and it opens it opens his mind it opens his is his brain to the images that are conveniently shown in Citadel image three, which Elena also has. Um, and, where and we not yeah, only his have, eyelids were clear. Yeah. yeah we, we not only have uh, Quetzalcoatl, but we have, uh, we have Amun Ra of, of Egypt. We have Apollo. Uh, we have all of these gods coming forward. Wow. That are, that are all here to stop the end of the world. At, at the hands of the creator of hatreds, right? They're like, hey, we've got this deal. You don't do this sort of thing. And he's like, yeah, 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 I'm going to do this thing. And is it just me or does that image look strikingly like the same pose for the cover of the patrons of Lankmar? Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, all, all of them. Pan- yeah, anyway. Um, Arc toad like thing. Yeah, well, well if yeah. you look down at the bottom, there is sort of a cat like thing, right? So, you know, Doug um, likes putting cat like things in there. Um, please but- tell me I was not the only one who saw the face of Babug Bilbils with the, the big, large, well, leering toad face. Well, and- see, sir, for me, if, for me, out of pulps, it's Tsthagwa, um, which, which is right, the, the Lovecraftian it. toad deity. Um, uh, but certainly, but yeah, certainly okay. I had that sort of imagery in my head. And, and so you've got, you have the, the gods are now intervening with, 
with rain and wind, which so explained what happened with uh, with the with the gatekeeper guardian monster. I thought it, at first I thought it was really cheesy when all of a sudden it's snaking it's snaking towards towards Cleona uh, and then and she doesn't know it's there and then a stick impales it to the ground. I was like, well, that's kind of weird. But then no, it's it revealed from the storm. why it was from the storm. But the but it was still the really winds. convenient until you realize the gods are directly intervening, and that's why it happened. And so mm-hmm. you get this kind of building crescendo, and then we have you, then there's oh, kind of the, the 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 physical cacophonic release of all of the creatures that that had been created. Pouring out and and at them as they're as they're fighting for their very lives, conveniently image four. Um and the imagery of the way Colin is is bound by by the snake or by something. Uh, it it almost the way the, the text reads. It was almost as if the snake was swallowing him whole. Well, see, for me, I I, I took it more as like a like a, a constrictor, right? Because every time he was exhaling, it was crushing down even further. And then he and, saw the face just getting nearer and nearer to his, the top right, of the face. Right. So it was more like it was wrapped around him and, and you had the snake's head kind of coming up. And, and he's lying in the bowl to be transformed. And there there's, and in a way, you can... It, it, if one wants to wax philosophical, right? He's he's in this bowl, almost like he's waiting to be reborn at the end of the story, and he sort of is as he I mean, now there, he, he perceives the gods. <laughs> he perceives the gods. He sees the struggle, and what's he going to do? He's going to punch things to death because that's what Colin does. He punches things to death. I mean, come on! You know, he, he punched Marcus to death. With one punch, accidentally, accidentally, Marco? one or Marco, one punch breaks his neck. Marco, or oh, what was the full name he was given? It turned out he was the fledgling uh, priest, or the priest in training, who had been sent there to perform that ritual and noticed the ill omens and kept going with it anyway. And, and but he was there because he was promised the Dusk Lady, right? Reed's Reed slash Kennedy's daughter. You know, he he mm-hmm. was he, he was the cre- he was the creepy moist stalker. Well, wait, was he? No, he wasn't promised the Dusk Lady. He was promised the um, the Dusk Lady is the, is the, the Moth same Lady. The Dusk Lady, straight out straight out of the caption. Even he he the moment he sees her. As a woman, oh, she's oh, the oh, dusk oh. lady. Uh, once they came uh, to and, America, yes. yes, she is the dusk yes. lady, and yes. he, you know, and and he wanted her, and so I, that's I why was he confusing was it with the the people in our our Aztec city, right? Because there was another set of betrothals that got busted. Yes, and, yeah. yes, the the moth lady who. Who her husband, who had claimed Colin for Quetzalcoatl, emerges as as almost as almost this godly figure himself, reiterating Quetzalcoatl's claim to to Colin. 
that mm-hmm. none that none other shall have him. None other shall shall break break the agreement and transgress. And so you you just have this kind of whirlwind. And when the god when I realized the gods were getting involved, I was like, oh, so we're going to get all this way, and then the gods are going to resolve everything. And that's going to be kind of disappointing. And that's not what no. happened either. No. no. And. Uh, <laughs> The gods got involved, and certainly the gods did do some heavy lifting, uh, like of the roof, for example. But all of our characters coming together at the end, in, in, you know, including our previously useless police Hapless officers, police officers, yes, who, who then, yes. and I, I kind of love the wind down. It's like okay. I almost pictured him like Columbo at that moment. Right? Okay, so so just bear with me here. Um, so what happened was it's just it, 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 it and, and then there was these monsters. There were there were monsters. There were monsters, and and he doesn't back down. He's like and, this. And this is my truth. Telling his story, and the, there's the chief trying to rein him back in. No, get back to these monsters. <laughs> I'll I'll get there, but but it is it's it's that moment of you know he too is transformed. He you know the 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 yeah. the actions of gods do not leave anyone untouched or unchanged. Well, and and here I have to go back to one of the warnings that Sven Bjornsson gave Colin, you know, back in the first act: don't ever take a knee to any of them. Well, don't. Well, he was like, you're, 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 that was, you're a good Christian boy, right? I'm Catholic. Don't, don't bow your head to another, to, to another person's gods. And, and that was, that was certainly even more telling. At first, it kind of comes off as just, well, you're a Christian. Don't, don't nod to pagans. But it really kind of comes down to then you look at, you look at his, his experiences where Mm -hmm. he had, he had found these people and he had married in and now he was their subject and his entire life had changed. And so that entire yeah. warning takes on, takes on a, a different tone, but then, you know, the gods show up and, you know, I'm sorry. Quetzalcoatl shows up in front of me and I'm going to be at least a little respectful. Right. I mean, normally when people say don't bow to other people's gods, it's because they don't believe in those gods, um, but they're real. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I also appreciate the wind down at the end of the story where it says there, she essentially says there doesn't need to be a continuation of this tale. Our story can end here. Yes, but, but it has an ending. Right. It's 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 not like that. Da, 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 and then we end. It's not quite keep. <laughs> it's not quite keep. Um, so, so we get we get kind of that cool down period. And uh, over I cannot I cannot stress enough how much I greatly enjoyed this story. Like, like I said, I I can going in at the beginning i was sort of comparing this to lovecraft's the mound which is which is That's a lot you were saying a, a lot, lot darker a lot creepier um and and the the kind of lost or forgotten tribe is certainly more alien and, and disgusting and, and foul but this was so much better in my brain when i i'd made that comparison like oh no this is much much better than the mound um yeah you were telling me it was so much like the mound and i went into it dreading it well honestly. no, no but, it read so much easier yes well 
I went into it comparing it to the mound. It wasn't really like the mound other than those initial similarities, but this story alone is enough to put Gertrude Barrows Bennett at the top of my favorite authors list. I mean, this, this story blew me away. And, and again, it was such, it was such an easy read. And we have our listeners to thank for that. That is true because they, I, they help I us may have our, been our like stories. I, I may have been weighing the vote a little. No, I didn't contribute any bits or anything to weigh the vote, but you just uh, encourage them to. Yeah, I know. I know. You're... Honestly, the story of the author intrigued me more than her. Uh, you know, I hadn't read anything by her yet, so I wanted that impetus. And while I was waiting for this book to arrive, I actually hit. Uh, I think two of the short stories in a separate collection that I was able to pick up and, you know, I, because, I will be on listeners. If, if nothing else, we've got books. <laughs> I, I, will, I will be on the lookout for the, you know, the, the more archival quality covers and, and the original uh, paperback still, but I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit I got what I could get now. Mm-hmm. And to it my was, door right now and it was it's the same well thing yeah yes there are some typos yes there are some places that got you know why is there an extra apostrophe there but no those aside i'm just going you know we could clean this up make it nice and and minty fresh but that was almost part of the charm was <laughs> reading um, it but, but reading it as it was written well whether or not the I I have oh, some I, of it I did may not have been, lay hands on the Argosy issues, so those could have been artifacts true. from from them. That's true. Uh, some of it may have been artifacts from the uh, PDFs or something. But, well, from from whatever the publisher used when they were when they were creating. It. Yeah, but um, I I just want I want that that paperback with the beautifully multicolored art on there with. Yeah. With the with the Aztec, yeah, no, there's there's again, it's in the public domain. Uh, people should be doing stuff with this. I mean, it is, it is, it nudge, is right nudge. for for you know any uh, all sorts of material, including you know, nicer versions of the book. Uh, but but yeah. so as as we as we talk about books in general, maybe we should we should uh, transition to talking about our next book, right? Because. Well, I'd like to be... know what what what, what we're uh, reading next. Yeah, yeah, that that'd be a real big help, wouldn't it? Uh, that would be for our our uh, Twitch mistress to help us out with. So we we have Ooh, our we have our, our poll. So our if you click on the little drop down arrow, you'll see our four choices. So we have. Margaret St. Clair's Dolphins of Altair, which I really want to read because it's part of the unofficial trilogy that follows the Shadow People. Um, Zena also- Henderson yep. and uh, The Pilgrimage, The Book of the People, the first of, of those works. There's C.L. Moore uh, with Jarell of Joyry, if I pronounce that correctly. And there's also Lady Margaret Cavendish. I'm not going to give this one up yet because this also really sounds intriguing to me oh shoot uh which is the the blazing world from 1666 no we have the wrong uh option for the poll the the Uh old she grabbed the poll before i changed it um that's okay that's okay it'll 
It'll be on the next one. Uh, so that last choice, instead of Miriam Allen DeFord, should read Lady Ma- Margaret Cavendish because the Blazing World published in 1666. The Which is not a poll very... option, so maybe I'll get to read The Dolphins of Altair. <laughs> that, that's true. Maybe I could weigh that one for you. Oh, wait, I need okay. to vote. Yeah, don't <laughs> forget to vote yourself. Come on. Can't give me a hard time for reading something you didn't want to read. Although honestly, I it's not that I don't want to read it's CL not that I don't Moore? want to read The Blazing World. I it, Moore I, is I the only one that I'm I'm not like really excited about. And and that might sound kind of silly too. Drill and Dory is is kind of an important tale on its own, but but I'm gonna push for Dolphins of Altair because my god, the number of times I've seen the Dolphins of Altair. You know, when when right. this this whole concept of an unofficial because it's not an official trilogy, right? it's it's an unofficial trilogy set in the in the near future uh, California. And, yeah, we're going to read Margaret Sinclair. You get your wish. <laughs> so for our You're next adorable. episode, we are going to read the Dolphins of Altair by Margaret Sinclair, which also means going back to Appendix N a little bit more officially because she at least appears on it. Yes, she's one of three women on appendix n and yes i'm i'm not here to bang the feminist drum i'm just representation is important well no and and honestly this is this is a major portion of 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 our literary past that most people including i mean i read a lot and i did not i had never heard the name zena henderson until you mentioned it to me there's there's so much out there and there's so I've many research yeah, yeah there's so many great voices and they influenced a lot of people that followed and so no i'm i'm totally on board for this ride it's uh it's not really beating a drum so much as lifting the scales from my eyes um no somebody uh i i'm gonna try to pronounce that and i can't uh Fizzeridin, uh redeemed points here on the Twitch channel to get a random joke or fact. So, Bob, give us one of them. Right, you know, random fact. Sure, put me on the spot for a random fact. Uh, okay, a random fact. A random fact. You can, in the middle of the Sahara Desert, you can fish and, and actually catch fish if you dig deeply enough. Because the the sands of the Sahara beneath are crisscrossed by freshwater rivers and streams that still bear fish. There is your random fact. That is quite random. You, it, you, well, you have right? delivered. Thank you. <laughs> I am nothing if not a font of useless knowledge. Oh, we've got a listener or two that might agree. Uh, And that is actually from the book (laughs) Trivia, which was published, I want to say, in 78. Yeah, we we really do need to play more trivia nights, Bob. We still have it on our shelves. Yeah, but the trivia I have isn't useful trivia. You know, who scored this touchdown? I don't know, but I can catch fish in the Sahara. Right on. Yeah. The Heron Fish <laughs> of my retro disco band in college. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, we disco wasn't retro for, for God bless. Ah, old. And actually, I would put it to our listeners to send us some ideas if they know of other women authors around this era or well, 
I wouldn't Anything be around this era. Prior, if we were going back to 1666, let, it's not just an era. Let's say pre-1990 then, or pre-1980 would be a good point. Yeah, especially um, people that have been overlooked, right? I mean, that's... Exactly. I, yes, we know we haven't done Ursula Le Guin yet. We haven't done Anne McCaffrey. We, I mean, although, although way out those, those are also people that are very, very well known. Exactly. Uh, Margaret Barb- Sinclair is, is on Appendix N and still really isn't all that well known today. Exactly. Um, uh, like I said, Campbell is of- kind of a, eh, depending on the genre, mystery, she's really big, sci fi, not so much. Well, in horror, she's really good with too. Yeah, there's, oh, yeah. there's there's a lot of people, but she is she's more kind of the the afterwave, right? She is she's in that wave of people that were influenced by the authors of Appendix N and those who came before. That's and true. We, so it's we really, could easily set like 1960 as our cutoff. Then, yeah, it's, it's it, some of this some of this older stuff is is fascinating. Now, the Blazing World is probably going to be a bit of a read because because English has changed. But it's also a a short story, which helps. It's a it's a quasi short story. It's its own book. Um, Um, And other stories is the uh, the one that I had pinpointed. But Uh, yeah, there's and and we're not and I'm going to continue to read more more of Francis Stevens. Yeah, and and eventually eventually we'll we'll transition from where we're at but but this series of of shows that we're doing right now is to me it's been fascinating and hopefully it is is fascinating to uh, to our uh, listeners and our our folks folks with us live oh. as we go and if anybody is interested i did find francis stevens on audible so you can find the citadel of fear you can find the nightmare you know her more horror oriented stories well, and if you've got if you've got prime if you have prime citadel of fear is free for kindle and oh, nice. and yeah, the audible right. is like a dollar 64 so right it's not worth using a point <laughs> if you've got an audible membership so but, I, but it is available in multiple uh avenues depending on your comfort level i know that it, sometimes it's easier to listen to a book Oh, and let's face it, it's a lot of the stuff that we're covering is not stuff that's easy to find in your local used bookstore. Unfortunately. So, yeah. So I think that is going to uh, kind of wrap us up for the evening. Thank you folks for joining us. It's always, it's always nice to have us have folks here with us as we're uh, doing the show. And, and uh, our next show will be approximately a month from now. It will be the third Tuesday of May, which puts us on the 17th. And we'll be here on the same channel at 9 p.m. So thank you very much, everyone. And uh, be inspired. Have a good night. Good night, guys. Sanctum Sequorum Reading Room has been a production of Sanctum Media.